Happy December, everyone, and welcome to the December Space Policy Edition of Planetary Radio. I'm Matt Kaplan, the host of the show, the weekly show, more so. I am lucky enough every month to co-host with Casey uh, this Space Policy Edition. Casey Dreyer is out there. He is the Senior Space Policy Advisor and Chief Advocate for the Planetary Society. Welcome, Casey. Hey, Matt. Always happy to do another one of these. They're starting to pile up. (laughs) We've done a few. Uh, I guess because you have this wonderful interview that that goes a bit, that we're going to forego talking about the current politics. You know what? We're not going to forego it. We're going to just forgive. (laughs) We're we're just not. I'll just take a break. Let's just take a break, not talk about U.S. politics. We'll talk about U.S. politics and international politics from about 50 years ago, 60 years yeah, ago. Yeah, I was going to say, we're going to back it up five decades. <laughs> yes, <laughs> to a simpler time. Yeah, no, we have a great guest, uh, Dr. Teasel Muir Harmony. Uh, she is a space historian, works uh, in the Apollo Collection at the Smithsonian Institution, and is also the author of a brand new book on the international outreach aspect of Apollo called Operation Moonglow, A Political History of Apollo really insightful, nice complimentary version, you know, or a story to tell beyond the what happened in the U.S. This is what happens outside the U.S. and how the international community engaged with this great feat of exploration. I got to meet Teasel at the uh, National Air and Space Museum once. I was out there uh, interviewing her boss, Ellen Stofan, who right now is chairing the transition uh, group that is looking at space policy for the Biden administration. Matt, we said we wouldn't talk about that. Oh, <laughs> you're right. I'm violating the rule. But uh, but Ellen is such a good friend of the show. And and I do want to mention that when we finished recording, Teasel said that she is so busy with uh, the chairing this transition group that she's not even checking her email right now. So go, Ellen, go. Uh, lead us into this, this next administration. Now, I'm sure that uh, some of the things that she's working on will probably end up as topics in future space policy editions. Uh, The only other thing I want to say, Casey, before we get into this terrific conversation, is that, of course, this is offered as a service of the Planetary Society. And many of you out there, something like 50,000 of you, are members. You're already supporting what we do. If you're not, we sure hope that you will go to planetary.org slash membership and join up and stand behind this show and everything else that the Planetary Society is up to. We also have a year-end campaign underway, and all you have to do to make a one-time donation, be a member as well, is go to planetary.org, and you will see the details pop up right there. Uh, Like all all kinds of nonprofits, we look to the end of the year for uh, providing a lot of the funding that we depend on throughout the year. This is a great time to... uh, let us know, maybe to, to thank us for uh, the Space Policy Edition and everything else that uh, we're up to. Again, planetary.org is where all the details are. Well, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't second your your plug for the Planetary Society. And, and you know, it, it's the end of the year. This is a great time to give a donation or to join as a member or even upgrade your membership. There, there are higher levels of membership to be on. Everyone says, you know, this is important, but I really want to emphasize this organization lives and dies on its membership. We don't have big corporate partners. We don't take government money. This enables our independence. This enables these really unique shows like what we're doing now. It's just a special organization to be a part of. And I I just cannot emphasize enough. Every member makes a difference. 
and enables us to do these types of things that we do, launch things into space, advocate on your behalf. That's because we have members. That gives us our whole reason to exist. So first, I just want to say thank you for listening. And if you can, if you're able to, it's a tough year for a lot of people. But if you're able to, please consider uh, chipping in and, and helping us do this better. I like that description. It makes it sound like the Consumer Reports of Space. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't sound as exciting as I think you want it to be. No, it's a very useful <laughs> magazine. I was a Consumer Reports kids, uh, zillions, I think. As, as oh, you kid. bet. I, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I read it cover to cover still. Uh, so there you go. A plug for Consumer Reports as well. <laughs> yeah, free. Um, <laughs> you, they get a free one. I think we're ready. Uh, shall we get into this uh, conversation with Teasel? Let's talk with Teasel. Teasel, thank you so much for joining me today on the Space Policy Edition. Thanks so much for having me on. So Teasel, you have a new book. I'll plug it here, Operation Moon Glow, A Political History of Project Apollo. Uh, I read through it before our discussion today, and I just say uh, congratulations on writing a very readable, interesting book that's really complimentary in the sense that it complements a lot of the story that we talk about in terms of Apollo, particularly in, in the United States. I want to start with kind of the this fundamental rephrasing or rethinking of the idea of Apollo. In the book, you say that Apollo, in order to effectively advance U.S. international political interests, had to be framed as an achievement of and not for all humankind. Why was this distinction important? Well, in some of the analysis after the first lunar landing on the impact of Apollo on U.S. foreign relations and U.S. position internationally, it was seen that one of the most important impacts was that people around the world felt like participants in the program. And they really not only felt a sense of unity, but that the achievement was um, an achievement of all humankind, not just the United States. This was seen as an element in building a global community um, that the United States was really becoming um, an effective global leader because people felt like participants in this American program. And so there was a, it's a slight shift from of and for the differences between for all mankind and of all mankind. But um, one of the objectives was getting people to really align with the United States, individuals around the world, and then also uh, political leaders and having Apollo viewed as part of all mankind as opposed to just for suggests that it was, you know, something that was participated in by everyone. And that sense of participation was seen as an important uh, impact politically for the United States. So let's set some context. I said, so why this was an important reframing uh, for the United States and the international stage, maybe even just jump back slightly to pre-Apollo to, I guess, right around Mercury, but coming into the JFK administration, what did the global stage look like that the United States was operating on? And, and how did that intersect with what is going to be important here about the international framing of Project Apollo? There are a few really important currents taking place at that time. So there's this larger Cold War context, this competition between the United States and the Soviet Union. And it was, you know, in many ways, an ideological competition between liberal democracy and communism. It was often taking place in the third world um, in other nations. And so it was a competition for affecting the political systems of other countries. Now, this was happening as the same at the same time as decolonization and the establishment of new countries. And so as countries were trying to decide which political system um, to use and, and which superpower to align with, the Cold War interest became even more potent. And then this was then also combined with 
this really widespread vision of science and technologies as drivers of progress and national power and prestige. And so demonstrations of science and technology were then also associated with the effectiveness of each respective political position. And then there's the additional element of um, the existence of nuclear weapons. And so much of the Cold War was taking place on the psychological battlefield. And so um, that competition was, was fought through symbolic gestures and then also public diplomacy programming. Right. Yeah. You, you don't want to have a direct confrontation anymore. The, the cost of that, in a sense, is, is far too high. And so people or nations, I should say, are more incentivized to look for other, almost like plumage, right? Or kind of some sort of symbolic statement of capability without direct confrontation. Exactly. And there were a number of different approaches at this time. And from anything like, you know, setting up exhibits in other countries to um, covertly backed coups. <laughs> so the, <laughs> the, range was, the range was broad, but there was this awareness that we don't want to resort to nuclear warfare and the, the risks of that are too great. And so um, the competition played out in a lot of uh, new arenas. Your book is packed with lots of really nice small details that add color uh, to, the, to the situations. I, that's not an aspect I really liked and enjoyed about reading your book. Something you said really struck with me, and I think to emphasize one of the points you made was, I think the year that John F. Kennedy was sworn in, off the top of my head, something like 16 new countries came into existence. Is that the right number? Um, off the top of my head, I think it's 18, but yeah, it was very close. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a big yeah. number. Um, yeah. yeah, a lot of new countries came into existence through this process of decolonization, a lot of reasons for it, but you know, after World War II, a lot of European nations just didn't have the means, and then you have this revolution of, of international kind of rights and and self determination. And I always think of this in the sense of why Apollo happened, and and kind of why it's different now when we talk about current efforts in space and going to the moon is that our borders are far more fixed, our, our political situations mm -hmm. around the world seem far more established. But here, this is that's an incredible amount of churn. So. When we talk about these kind of symbolic behaviors or, or statements and using science and technology between the Soviet Union and the United States, I feel like the key here is that there was an audience for it, right? There was an active audience that they were competing for as these new countries were coming into existence. Exactly. Whenever I talk about the space race, I always emphasize that it, it wasn't just between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. It wasn't just the two superpowers competing with each other. It was really competing for and in front of a global audience on a global stage. And that's an essential part of the competition. And there wouldn't have been a space race without that larger global audience and without that very unique geopolitical context where there was so much happening, so much evolution, um, so many new countries trying to decide about which political system to pursue and, and which superpower to align with. And so it's, it's such an important part of explaining why the space race happened in the first place. And this is something I struggle with, too, just in terms of my understanding of history. Is this a story that was real, for lack of a, letter, lack of a better term? Were countries really sitting around saying, boy, you know, boy, I don't know what, you know, system is better for my country. But wow, you know, the Soviets just sent Yuri Gagarin into space. Well, I guess I'll become a communist country now. Like, or was that really <laughs> a perception, do you think, of the US and the Soviet Union? Like how effective were these in terms of driving this kind of outcome that they wanted to see at this really kind of real politic level? 
as you suggest, it was a much more complicated process than that. And it wasn't like a light switch just on and off or aligning with the U.S. or aligning with the Soviet Union. Or um, There was a lot of nuance within each of these individual countries and a lot of contingent factors. And so I think that the way we talk about it and the way that U.S. policymakers were talking about it had a lot to do with this sort of larger grand strategy and fears about what might be possible. And so this idea that the Soviet Union was going to spread influence and the U.S. had to contain it and that it would be of U.S. interest to you know, lead the world and, and to have as many countries as possible with political systems that complemented our interests. And so some of this uh, conversation about it, it makes it sound much more simple than it is. And I think that's part of the reason I wanted to look at some of the on the ground exchanges and, and what this actually meant in terms of individual examples, situations in individual countries. How was this, this larger strategy playing out? Right. You start the book with the anecdote of coming or stumbling across this uh, piece of information about, was it in Japan, how many people came to see, was it the Mercury capsule that was on display in Tokyo? Yeah, mm-hmm, exactly. Um, John Glenn's Friendship 7 capsule. This use of space, I mean, it wasn't also for nothing. It's not like they weren't just completely making it up. People really did respond to this type of outreach. So maybe just set that stage in Tokyo. So, you, you know, the U.S. would send some of the hardware around the world. And, and what kind of response would it get? It was absolutely extraordinary. So um, this is how the project started. I was in the National Archives looking through some material, and I came across these documents about this exhibit in Tokyo of the Friendship 7 spacecraft. So this was John Glenn's um, spacecraft. This is the first American orbital flight the U.S. decided to send it on an international tour. So it circled the world one more time um, and stopped in many locations. And in Japan, it drew a huge audience and people would wait in line up to eight hours just to walk by it, which I found absolutely stunning. And it it gives you a sense for the level of enthusiasm and how brand new spaceflight was at this time. So this was 1962 and um, Sputnik, the first satellite, was launched in 57. So just a few years later and human spaceflight was just one year old. So it was brand new, very, very exciting. But it's hard to think about what might you wait in line eight hours to see. Uh, it gives you a real sense of of the excitement. And 500,000 people saw it in just a few days. And everywhere it went, it drew just record crowds. It was an incredibly popular tour. And I forget if it was this particular capsule, but you work at the Smithsonian, and I believe it was them who, who kind of wrote this plea to the State Department that said, please don't let people touch the spacecraft because that'll help, that'll degrade this kind of fragile, historically important, not really a relic at that point, but item. But they said, no, people have to touch this, right? So people were able to just file by and they would just kind of want this tactile res- like engagement with something that had been into space, which I found a really interesting aspect of all of this to make it real in a sense. Sending the hardware abroad, I think, was a great way of of making it feel more real. And as I was mentioning, you know, spaceflight going from science fiction to science fact within a few years and, and seeing the spacecraft in person, and you can see its experience when you look at it. You know, you can see its charged surface, that it went and experienced atmospheric reentry. And that's an important part of not only recognizing that it was real, it was really happening, but also what spaceflight might be like and that it was a human um, was also helpful for relating to the mission. Yeah, the Smithsonian was quite worried at the time what was happening to these these artifacts, but um, people within the State Department and the U.S. Information Agency thought that it was really important for people to connect with these spacecraft and connect with the American space program. And, and that sense of connection was really something they found um, important to build. You just mentioned something that I wanted to, to bring up, the, the U.S. Information Agency. Uh, this 
plays a really prominent role in in your book. And really, I don't think I don't recall really having seen that uh, in the story of Apollo before. What is the U.S. Information Agency, the USIA, and how did it fit into this concept of this kind of this so-called new diplomacy of the Cold War that emerged during the 50s and 60s? So the USIA was established by President Eisenhower, and it was part of an effort to centralize uh, the United States' overseas information activities. Its mission was sharing information about the United States with the world. Um, There was a fair amount of propaganda and public diplomacy and cultural diplomacy involved in that. At that time, for Eisenhower and later Kennedy um, and Johnson and even Nixon, seen as an important effort um, of the U.S. government. So it was the largest full-service public relations organization in the world. One of the directors, Edward R. Murrow, liked to um, compare it to the cost of a Polaris missile, which I thought was a pretty effective way to do it, and that the whole agency's uh, the workings, which included libraries around the world and press offices at embassies and uh, programs to teach English and distribution and production of documentary films and the Voice of America program and uh, the distribution of books and magazines and exhibitions, so all sorts of activities cost less than one single Polaris missile. It was this large effort to um, win the hearts and minds of the world public, spread American culture and values around the world. It was part of the larger Cold War competition um, for hearts and minds and, and larger geopolitical influence. The USIA was responsible for uh, sharing information about the American space program abroad, um, and they worked closely with the State Department to do that. Um, but one of the reasons I think that that material hasn't been drawn on or hasn't been part of the story is that it's a, it's a different archival collection and it's not as much uh, represented in the, the NASA archival material. But there's a rich, rich wealth of sources in the U.S. information archives about these overseas activities, especially relating to spaceflight. I think we'll get into this in, in a bit, but something that strikes me about the USIA is that it's not just a place that's producing content, it's a distribution system, right? It, it's in place around the world to provide information to local newspapers, to local press, uh, to provide translations of various things. So it's it's not just that they're in Washington, D.C. cranking out propaganda films or something like that, but they're, <laughs> they have a, a distribution system. And I think that becomes really important later on in the story. But before we get there, I still want to dwell a little bit in the in the early 1960s when this concept of space as a national prestige and symbolic demonstration of capability was kind of in its most influential peak of understanding between the two superpowers. Uh, you talk about this concept of, of the new diplomacy, I think, is that the right term? Mm-hmm. And how that drives this broader ex- idea of what it means to compete non-militaristically, but for national security. Why don't we just touch on that a little bit? Because again, I think it sets the context for why the USIA and then Apollo and and the other space efforts in the 60s become so critical to that effort. Sure. Yeah. So this concept of a new diplomacy was articulated by Henry Kissinger um, in 1955, but it was part of a long, larger conversation that was being had among many people who were thinking about um, power at that time. And so Kissinger had been invited to discuss the future of U.S. strategy um, with a group that was organized by Nelson Rockefeller, who was advising 
Eisenhower at the time um, when it came to basically public information abroad and psychological strategy. But he articulated it really well. And so I like to um, use this as a way to sort of set up this understanding of this context that the U.S. decided to pursue um, satellite development within. And so basically um, is the recognition that this combination of factors, this sort of new international environment with nuclear weapons and the Cold War uh, really heightened the importance of psychological strategy. Um, and in particular, things like symbols and rhetoric and ideas and images had a new political potency. And it was also very, very important to engage with international publics, um, especially because of mass media and how that revolutionized the influence of the public on international politics. So this is like the hearts and minds concept begins to form. Is that, would you say that's an accurate way to summarize that? Exactly. Yeah. And, and, a, and a clear articulation of some of the tools that are involved in it. Um, mm-hmm. So especially the importance of the media revolution. And, and right. you'll see that with something like the moon landing that is televised. And that's a really important part of that history. Um, so it ties into that as well. So as Space Age begins, the Soviet Union, I'd say probably takes the lead then in using this almost the same idea, right? This kind of new diplomacy to, to promote itself through the Sputniks. And then, of course, uh, with mm-hmm. Gagarin's first flight, it's not like this is a U.S. only attitude, right? This is a, a purposeful propagandistic opportunity from the Soviet Union to say this is how great our capabilities are. I don't know if it's right to call it a you know great irony of this moment, but I do find it interesting that both the U.S. and the Soviet Union decide to differentiate each respective political system with the same types of demonstration. So <laughs> they both turn to space flight to demonstrate what's great about their respective political systems. It's it's an interesting approach, but starting out with the Soviet Union, there was this incredible sensitivity and awareness to um, the political power and of prestige and the role of space flight within impacting the USSR's um, standing in the world at that time. You point to, I mean, there, there's real public polling behind this, that this wasn't just a perception on the U.S. side. This, there was a real slip. I mean, this goes back to, you know, Walter McDougall talked about this in his books. The, there was a real increase in understanding, I should say, of the Soviet Union's technological superiority or perception thereof broadly throughout the public in Europe and other countries. So this had a real effect. Like the symbolism, and while being a symbol, was really effective, or it seemed to be at the beginning of the space age. And it's interesting, again, as you point out, like how space temporarily kind of occupied this place of this universally accepted signifier of capability that was so effective. And, and it maybe has something to do with that. These are individual missions. So there's there's a thing that we could wrap our heads around or that it's visible. You can listen to it or see it going overhead in, in a satellite. But this idea that everyone agrees is important. And then that was the big debate I, I, I recall among the Eisenhower and then JFK was, do you engage the Soviets on their own terms in the space race? Or is there something else they can do to compete and, and, and demonstrate another way of technological superiority? And it seems like there wasn't. I, I remember JFK talked about, can we do desalinization as a way to one-up the Soviets in space? And Nothing else at the time seemed to be able to offer that same punch as, as space exploration. One of the reasons I think that they they settled on that idea it was this public opinion polling, and the USIA was instrumental in that in testing the temperature of global public opinion, 
both through individual polling as well as the collection of newspapers from around the world and compiling that. And that was um, submitted to both Eisenhower and um, Kennedy regularly. And it, w- it became very, very clear that this was going to be sort of the measuring stick for the efficacy of political systems, that this was going to be the way that a lot of people were going to judge whether or not the Soviet Union was both technologically and scientifically powerful, but then also even more broadly than that, whether or not communism was an effective political system. John F. Kennedy addresses Congress in 1961 on the topic of urgent national needs. And of course, this is where he first publicly calls to pursue moon landing through through the U.S. space program. But you you make a point out there were other, these are needs, plural. What were the other national needs that he articulated in the context of Apollo? This was a long address. And uh, if you've heard any of it, you've probably heard less than five minutes of it. And it's it was actually about 30 minutes long. And so uh, it was a much broader address. And he, the way he set it up uh, was very much with this Cold War context and the importance of the third world within his understanding of what the United States had to do and what the nation's urgent national needs were. And so he talked about the lands of the rising people. He was referring to Asia, Latin America, Africa, and the Middle East. And that there was a battle taking place uh, and the U.S. had to sort of steer the global revolution. It was setting up this context that it was very, very important for the U.S. to be somewhat interventionalist um, and to engage with the world. And then he also talked about the importance of things like these these information programs, public diplomacy, um, some national security, some domestic as well as um, international programs, helping support uh, the economies of other countries as a bulwark against communism. And so he runs through this whole list of initiatives that the U.S. had to undertake in order to not only secure the country, but then also to secure the position of the United States internationally. And then at the very end, then he introduces Apollo. And uh, when you look at Apollo in that context, it it really makes it clear that it was part of Kennedy's larger uh, grand strategy at that time, um, and that it wasn't something that was pursued in isolation or just because of interest, but it was part of this larger strategy that Kennedy was pursuing that he thought was essential for the U.S.'s position within the world at that moment. I think this is one of those critical takeaways from your book, and I think just about Apollo in general, is that from the beginning, Apollo was seen as a tool of this international competition for global influence or against communism, however exactly you want to frame it. I mean, you have a nice quote in your book saying that human spaceflight wasn't done for the innate human thirst of exploration or an economic incentive. It was politics, or precisely, he said, the particular geopolitical moment where global superpowers competed for global leadership through demonstrations of technological superiority. I think we just can't can't emphasize that enough, maybe, that we can't get away from that as being the inciting role of what became a, a very inspirational human exploration endeavor. But it was done for these very practical and, seem, and and at the time, very immediate purposes. When, in, again, in that context of national needs, Apollo was kind of the capper to these other areas of interest. The book that you're, again, that you're kind of, you're, you're addressing this as a fundamental issue. Do you feel like that part of the story has been forgotten, particularly in the United States, that ironically, even though it was kind of pitched as this international success of, a, like, we all did something that has actually been now seen as more of a triumph by uh, the United States? I think so often when I when I speak to people, um, they're sometimes surprised that the United States sent humans to the moon for reasons beyond science. I think there's a lot of expectation that it it was primarily about 
scientific exploration. And um, there's a lot of emphasis on how we got to the moon, I would say, mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to why. Although some of the fundamentals of the politics have been established, um, there's some some great work on that. Um, John Logston's work is, is really fantastic in that, and um, Walter McDougall as well. Other people have touched on this too. There's been less done on looking at how it played out uh, on the ground and evaluating Apollo throughout the decade in terms of uh, foreign relations and, and its role within foreign relations. And so not only is it important, I think, to, to recognize and to remember uh, what inspired Kennedy or what the, the initial rationale for lunar exploration was in 1961, uh, but to then also understand how it impacted foreign relations and how that played out and the evolution of its role throughout the 1960s. Do you think people tend to downplay that now? Because, I mean, the world is just so much different now when we look back. It's almost hard to place yourself in that situation. But do you think maybe there's this idea that that almost sullies what should be seen as some grand, pure, scientifically motivated piece of exploration? Why do you think this gets downplayed? Sometimes I do hear this concern, like, oh, it's just empty, you know, just a symbolic gesture, and it it would take away from some of the meaning of Apollo. But I would really counter that because I think there's a lot to be said for a program that is focused on peaceful exploration um, that's about demonstrating values of a country in a peaceful way. And, And also the prioritization of the international community, the U.S.'s relationship with the world, and a lot of you know, what motivated this program was improving the United States' relationship with the world. And I think um, there's great value in that as well. And so just because Apollo was, in many ways, a political program, and it had the other elements to it as well, and that's important. But um, I don't think the, the politics or even this connection to um, symbolism diminish in any ways the significance, the meaning, the, the importance of that program, either at that moment or even how we remember it today. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to have that part of the story because if we don't understand where it came from, people may just be constantly disappointed that we don't have Apollo again, right? And and people always kind of want very badly to see, why don't we just do it again? And it's like the fundamental conditions are just so different. We have to understand why did it happen in the first place? And governments of any nation generally don't open their pocketbook to that extent just for feel-good stuff, right? It has to be meeting some very intense and urgent national need, as JFK would say. I'd like to move forward now that we've kind of established that, you know, Apollo is happening in this context of this new diplomacy, this outreach to the world, this competition, in a sense, for these new nations that are forming. Throughout the 1960s, and, and going back to kind of what the USIA is doing around the world, there is then a concerted and very intensive effort to share the successes in space with people around the world. You highlight in your book kind of a couple of examples of this, starting with, uh, we already talked about, what was it, the fourth orbit of of John Glenn's Mercury Mm -hmm. capsule. Um, But then they start sending astronauts around the world and Gemini, with the Gemini astronauts, and then obviously the astronauts from Apollo and so forth. What was driving these efforts and what were they trying to get out of them? Why did they pursue these where they did? But also how do they contrast to what the Soviet Union was doing at the same time, who also was launching cosmonauts into space and doing, you know, successive space first throughout the, particularly the early 1960s. Initially, there was some wariness about sending American astronauts abroad, and there was concern that it would be seen as just an empty propaganda gesture. 
So it wasn't until the, the mid-1960s that they changed that policy and decided to send the astronauts around the world. And they were seen as sort of great embodiments of, an, of Americans um, as ideal ambassadors for the United States at that time. They were encouraged to be scientific representatives. So there was a lot of concern that they would be seen as you know, far too political or that they would just be traveling for propaganda. And so the emphasis was placed on sharing scientific information and having less scripted speeches and things like that. And there was a lot of hope that the astronauts would be able to connect with audiences, um, which they, they tended to be quite successful at. They did a great job of also finding ways to connect local cultures, uh, local history to space exploration, to their missions and to the larger American effort in, in space, which did a lot to increase the sense of participation of people around the world in um, the American space program. Got to take a quick break. Casey and his guest, Teasel Muir Harmony, will be back in moments. Hi, this is Jennifer Vaughn, the Planetary Society's Chief Operating Officer. 2020 has been a year like no other. It challenged us, changed us, and helped us grow. Now we look forward to a 2021 with many reasons for hope. Help us create a great start for this promising new year at planetary.org slash planetary fund. When you invest in the Planetary Fund, your year-end gift will be matched up to $100,000 thanks to a generous member. Your support will enable us to explore worlds, defend Earth, and find life elsewhere across the cosmos. Please learn more and then donate today at planetary.org slash planetary fund. Thank you. You discuss a few examples of the United States needed to place tracking stations all around the world in order to be in constant communication or relatively constant communication with assets in orbit. That brought up a number of issues with uh, nations that were had just decolonized or been uh, freed from colonization. That was an interesting aspect where you said that the U.S. was able to kind of use this more peaceful aspect of the space program to establish a physical presence in a lot of these new nations under the guise of, again, this kind of peaceful scientific exploration. Did, did that specifically drive kind of the decisions of how and where they placed tracking stations, or was it just kind of a useful tool based on the actual physical need of where they needed to put those? So the tracking stations are this this fascinating combination of factors because there are the technical reasons for the locations of the tracking stations around the world just to, to service the missions, right? And then there's also this interest in having presence in these countries around the world. But then there's sort of a pushback and uh, because the U.S. needed to have tracking stations located around the world beyond its own territory. There had to be a lot of negotiation and work done, so public relations work done to ensure that the stations would be accepted and not not perceived as uh, sort of an informal attempt at empire. There, there are fascinating stories from each of these individual locations of the effort and um, a lot of effort that had to go into ensuring that they would be welcomed at the various locations around the world. Is that, do I remember correctly, they sent astronauts to some of those countries again, like almost as a, not as a payback, but as an acknowledgement that they were trying to do additional outreach to the population there to demonstrate the scientific aspects of these, the, the outreach aspects of these? Exactly. So countries that had tracking stations would uh, be first on the list of priorities for all sorts of uh, information activities. So the astronaut tours, definitely, as well as exhibits. Um, so they were a high priority. Um, and it was, it was seen as really important to, for, to foster these relationships, as, as you might guess, uh, places 
in like Africa, for instance, Nigeria or Madagascar, those were our top priority for all sorts of information activities related to spaceflight because they, they hosted American tracking stations in their countries. So what was the Soviet Union doing as their, their own version of this at the same time? It, we know that they were sending, Yuri Gagarin did a, a tour around the world. So what was the contrast between their approach to international outreach with their space program versus what the U.S. was doing? So there was a, a concerted effort by the U.S. government to to differentiate um, the presentation of the space program internationally with what the Soviet Union was doing. And so uh, especially early on, there was there was quite a difference. Um, the Soviet Union was not sending their spacecraft around the world. They were, were not sharing details about the hardware and instead focused on sending astronauts on tours. But they had a similar type of communications information infrastructure and and efforts to with with radio programming and you know placing of, of newspaper articles and things like that. So it was a similar type of effort in those regards. But the emphasis was much more on on focusing on on humans um, like Gagarin uh, as opposed to spacecraft. And and part of that comes from uh, this concern about sharing engineering information of um, Soviet spacecraft with with the world, especially because the early early designs of the spacecraft, the astronaut had to eject and um, the craft itself crashed into um, the ground. And so there was some concern that that might not count as a successful spaceflight. That information was concealed for, for quite some time and um, in turn information about the design of the spacecraft. And so the U.S. Uh, leaned much more into sharing technical information with the world. Um, it was a demonstration, at least the way people thought about it, as you know, being open, focusing on, on the science and the engineering, seemed more apolitical and so therefore could serve the political interests of the country much more, at least as how it was interpreted by um, members of the U.S. Information Agency. So that was one of the, the major differences. It is interesting, though, because uh, both the U.S. and the Soviet Union uh, were also doing counter-propaganda of each other's programs. And so Soviet news sources would downplay American accomplishments and, and, you know, and vice versa. As this was happening throughout the 1960s, culminating, of course, in the Apollo flights. This type of space outreach, again, it seemed to be very popular. They were getting huge crowds for both the astronauts and the and the hardware going around the, the world. But it was also seen as a useful counter-narrative for some really significant issues that were happening at the U.S. in the same time, notably the civil rights movement and the perception of the United States in particularly countries in Africa. And then also, of course, the growing kind of calamity happening in Vietnam. So how was space used in a sense to try to purposefully, not necessarily cover up, but change the subject away from these issues? Space was used a few different ways. One, one sort of straightforward way was that, you know, this idea that if there's a important space mission, that it would make the front page of the newspaper. And so that coverage wouldn't be of the Vietnam War, for instance. And so just <laughs> yeah. displacing uh, other yeah. news, more negative news, um, was seen as quite positive. Uh, they kept track of that. For Africa in particular, uh, the U.S. sent African-American trained space lecturers around to different countries to lecture about space and to also demonstrate um, some of the opportunities within the United States. There's a lot of concern that American civil rights were, were painting a very bad picture of the United States, especially in Africa. And, you know, Africa was a continent with many, many new nations at that period in time. Um, and so it was a priority region for the United States. And so sending these African-American lecturers there uh, was a part of that programming. 
Edward R. Murrow, who is the head of the U.S. Information Agency during the Kennedy administration, even pushed to have NASA include African-American astronauts. But there was a bit of pushback on that. But as the head of the USIA, he really saw it as an important part of you know, demonstrating the values of the United States to the world and that in, in places like Africa, it was important to demonstrate that this was uh, the United States was an inclusive nation with opportunities for everyone. Yeah, I found that unintentionally very revealing on their part that they would say, oh, we need to send these scientific ambassadors out to these African nations, while at the same time having zero diversity in the astronaut corps, right? And, and generally, <laughs> I mean, there were some at NASA as, we, as we've begun to learn, I think, in the last few years, more of those stories. But I mean, the in terms of the astronaut corps, that was... It's like, was that even a level of awareness to them? Like in terms of what Edward Amaro was talking about, I, I know there's significant pushback within NASA itself, but it just seems like the fundamental irony of this is that there were serious problems that they didn't even try to deal with. Yeah, especially so they were also in exhibits in Africa. They also, you know, wanted to show pictures of African Americans working at NASA, and I think that's a that was a challenge in the early 1960s because of the um, the makeup of the workforce. But I mean, I think there's a lot to this idea that the astronauts were talked about as ideal Americans or these, this group of men represent America, but they're all, first of all, they're all men. Uh, they're all white. They're all about the same age. Uh, there, there are so many characteristics about them that were very, very similar. So much so that with, um, the Mercury astronauts, they actually have them take their pictures in alphabetical order lined up because there was concern that, it would be hard to tell them apart. You know, newspapers would would label their names incorrectly, so they they made sure to take pictures of them in alphabetical order. You know, so there was this <laughs> there was a lot of similarity between them, and so the idea that they embody an American or what we think of as an American, mm-hmm. I think, you know, it was really problematic, and it points to a lot of some of the the tensions existent in trying to portray a country in this type of way or pursuing this type of symbolism and the image of the country that the United States was trying to project abroad through the Apollo program and what was happening domestically, you know, they weren't exactly a match. And I think that explains some of the the limitations of the impact of Apollo on U.S. foreign relations long term. We're starting to get to the end of the 60s and we, we kind of hit the two big successes, the international in terms of international awareness. Apollo 8, first circumnavigation of the moon, and Apollo 11, of course. I'd like you to just discuss a little bit about Apollo 8, focusing on the famous you know, Christmas broadcast from the crew. Obviously, we're all familiar with that because we experienced it, but that didn't just happen by accident, right? There was this enormous effort and amount of planning that had gone into making sure the world could follow what was happening on Apollo Live uh, by organizations like the USIA. What went into this and and what was that public reaction like, uh, starting with Apollo 8 and then we'll move on to 11? Part of the planning involved making people aware that the mission was was coming up. Um, This was true also of Apollo 11, increasing awareness, working with journalists around the world, even training journalists, bringing them to the United States um, so that they could go to their respective country and, and speak about Apollo there were the creation of exhibits and pamphlets and so all sorts of efforts sort of on the ground around the world to, to make people aware that it was going to happen and to get people excited and engaged. Um, there was also effort to um, ensure that there would be 
uh, a live television broadcast to quite a lot of the world. So Apollo 8 was a little more limited in 1968, um, but a satellite importantly went up um, shortly before it, um, which allowed more coverage. And then the USIA also made sure that people could listen to the broadcast on radio, so through the Voice of America and um, the translation of that coverage in, in many, many languages so people could follow along. So there was this huge communications infrastructure side of it. And then also the astronauts were made aware that their mission would be uh, followed by a huge portion of the world population, the largest ever at that time. And so they had to think through what they were going to do in space that would be historically significant um, and, and to really uh, mark that moment. Part of that included bringing you know, television equipment with them aboard so that people could follow along. And then uh, Frank Borman was told that he was going to be up there doing a television broadcast on Christmas, and so we should say something appropriate. So he consulted with the science advisor from the USIA who consulted with another friend, and they came up with this idea of reading from Genesis, in large part because it was seen as having uh, universal relevance as much as possible, that it would connect with people who weren't just Christian, but, but beyond that, um, because Genesis was more representative of more people around the world. I'm still struck by how little guidance the astronauts get. It's like, you'll, you'll be up there, say something good, you know, and we kind of leave it up to them. Like they, it was not like a, a highly scripted or controlled process. They, they really gave a significant amount of freedom to these astronauts to, to be themselves really in that situation. And that was interpreted as uh, effective, more effective. With the Soviet Union, a lot of what the astronauts said was very scripted. And actually, Yuri Gagarin's first report on his mission was entirely scripted by someone else and he memorized it. It was a very different approach, USIA and NASA. And the State Department really uh, encouraged the astronauts to say things in their own words um, because they saw that as, as potentially more effective. So Frank Borman, the commander of Apollo 8, he could have actually said anything at that moment that he wanted to. And he he decided to approach the science advisor because he, he wanted guidance. But um, I think Neil Armstrong's words on on the moon are a great example of that, that it's it's almost I think it is sort of surprising when you think about it, that that wasn't scripted. But that's an important part of the larger strategy to the role of Apollo within U.S. foreign relations is that the astronauts are going to be sort of most effective when it comes to its contribution to U.S. foreign relations if they speak for themselves, if they are themselves, if they really represent um, these American values of openness and freedom. I just want to emphasize again this aspect of this ground game, in a sense, of this really basic levels of getting the word out throughout the world through the USIA. I, I think you said something like hundreds of thousands of things were printed and maps distributed and press releases written and use the local press and use the local customs and try to put Apollo in that context to try to be relevant. This seemed like just this massive undertaking Something, again, that really struck me from your book was that going back to this first question that I asked in terms of this interview, which was this framing of the Apollo program and landing on the moon ultimately with Apollo 11 as being an everybody success, as a success of humankind versus a success of the United States, that was very intentional. Can you talk a little bit, where did this come from, this idea of intentionality, of, of downplaying the nationalistic 
aspect of this to the to the broader world. And I almost can't imagine that happening <laughs> today <laughs> um, with this idea of like people should thump their chest about doing kind of a nationalistic thing. Why did that come out and, and how did that end up setting in a sense the successful framing of this? Because that was the framing ultimately embraced by everybody. So part of that came from the experience overseas of many of the public affairs officers who were working to promote the U.S. space program abroad and observing how people reacted to different types of programming. And whenever programs like documentary films that were being showed really championed the United States or showed the American flag, the response in many locations was uh, (laughs) people might roll their eyes or just think it was too much. And so uh, one of the important elements of public diplomacy is um, listening. As I mentioned before, that includes polls, public opinion polls, which were uh, an important part of the USIA's work, but also um, sort of reporting back on how effective this programming is. What what are people interested in? Is this tone off? What What is going to resonate with people? And so the approach, the tone, the framing was refined over time. And a lot of it had to do with observing what was effective and what was not effective internationally. And public affairs officers really realized that whenever the space program was put in this context of you know, American exceptionalism, American accomplishment, it didn't resonate as well. And they made it very clear that everyone, everyone knows that the Apollo program is an American program. We don't need to emphasize that part. Um, and when we downplay it and when, we be more, when we're more inclusive with our language and our images and um, when we talk about the, the meaning and the significance and, you know, using phrases like for all mankind at that time were a way to demonstrate that inclusivity. And that was much more effective. I mean, people were much more receptive to that message. And so uh, the presentation of Apollo in this programming evolved over time because of that listening and that observing by public affairs officers. Ironically, then more effective as U.S. Propaganda, essentially, and that may propaganda is too strong of a word, but just it, it more effectively did the job of what that international new diplomacy wanted it to do by lowering, by being less obviously kind of jingoistic. It became then more received, uh, received, I guess, more effectively received. So it's an interesting lesson in terms of the maturity of that effort at the time of of how they were putting this together. And then, of course, again, the immense amount of work to just get the word out. Um, And I like that there's a little story in there about how they had to move, I think, an old communication satellite into position because one a new one failed so they could get this live coverage around the world. So there's this whole infrastructure that was set up to enable the live following of ultimately Apollo 11. After Apollo, I think we get to the kind of the, the title of your book, Operation Moonglow, comes from, at the time, President Richard Nixon leaving on this global diplomacy tour, literally right after splashdown of Apollo 11, right after the astronauts got back safe. This must be, you know, obviously it's important you consider it like this kind of key aspect of the book if you name the book after this tour. So what was Nixon's tour, Moonglow, what was it trying to do and how did Apollo enable that to occur versus just a, a normal diplomatic tour by a U.S. president? Nixon's tour is is so appropriately named, and the expectation was that the enthusiasm for the moon landing and the wonderful sort of glow that it lent uh, the United States at that time would be effective um, for him to advance some of his new foreign policy initiatives. When Nixon entered office, he was really he was really concerned about the U.S.'s role in the Vietnam War and then also um, its relationship to China, and these are two areas that he really wanted to to um, 
to affect and change. And so uh, he saw lunar exploration as a great opportunity to help him advance these interests. So he, he named this diplomatic tour that he went on after the, the moon landing Operation Moonglow. But I think it applies well more generally to um, how spaceflight, how the Apollo program um, sort of the reflected glory of that, how it boosted other areas of U.S. interest, um, how it contributed to U.S. foreign relations and sort of added a glow uh, to the country, I guess you could say. How long did that glow last? So, you I mean, you had goodwill in general, like everyone, and then there was a follow-up tour by the astronauts themselves, uh, the giant step tour, I guess it would be, that they went all around the world in this rapid succession. Did it fade or is there a quantifiable metric by which the U.S., felt like it benefited from this. So beyond just feeling good, was it just temporary or did something really happen from the, the international beneficiary of this uh, moon glow? So one of the problematic things about public diplomacy is it's really hard to evaluate impact. That's been just one of the issues all along. I'll preface this statement with that. And also that people who worked at the USIA were well aware that the the moon landing would would the impact of it would fade with time. That it wasn't going to entirely change uh, everyone in the world's perception of the United States. It wasn't going to win the Cold War. There were, um, I think, very very sober uh, expectations for the potential impact of the moon landing. But there was a lot of excitement about how much impact it did have. The USIA put in a lot of effort in the weeks following the the moon landing to ensure that the effect would last as long as possible. And part of the effect that they saw it to be the most potent or most important was the sense of vicarious participation in the moon landing, that the sense that it was of all mankind and not for all mankind. I will say that um, when I travel, uh, when I get to meet with people um, around the world, there is quite a bit of enthusiasm still for the moon landing. A lot of people who are over the age of, say, 55 or so, uh, have a story to tell. And I've heard just some incredible stories um, in other countries of, of people's experience with, with the first lunar landing. Uh, and there's still a lot of excitement and goodwill um, because of that. Now, Apollo was competing with other things, and, and there was a lot of criticism at the time of the Vietnam War in particular, um, U.S. race relations, all sorts of other things. So I don't think that it completely dominated everyone's view of the United States or of liberal democracy in, in relationship to communism. But it did offer something that most people saw as quite positive. Um, and so in that way, uh, it was an important contributor long term to the U.S. image around the world. You did have a, a quote from uh, Richard Nixon at dinner with the Apollo 11 astronauts, and he may have been a sheet or two to the wind when he said this, but he, he made some claim of like meeting with some other head of state he hadn't been able to get a meeting with was worth the cost of the moon program. Did it open doors diplomatically previous that there weren't before? Uh, Richard Nixon believed that it did. And I think that all the presidents who served over the course of the Apollo program really focused on its role within foreign relations and how it could help their administration's respective interests. And so I think there are lots of ways to talk about, you know, Apollo and its role in foreign relations. But this was this was a major emphasis. So for Nixon, uh, it was so important for him to get this meeting with Ceausescu from Romania because he saw that as an opportunity to open up um, communication channels with with China and North Vietnam. And he thought Apollo really helped him do that. Um, meeting with Ceausescu was part of his Operation Moonglow tour. It helped us advance these 
these other interests. But I think when he says, you know, uh, this meeting was worth <laughs> everything we paid for Apollo, I mean, it was a bit dramatic to say that. Uh, but it tells you a lot about how he was evaluating spaceflight and and why a president might invest in that scale of a program. A fascinating detail that I had not known was that the first direct discussions with the North Vietnamese at a high level with U.S. Diploma, uh, diplomacy happened during the Moon Glow program in France with uh, Henry Kissinger. Yeah, it's it's an um, interesting connection and a great story. I mean, it seems like it's out of a novel or something, but part of uh, timing Operation Moon Glow, when they timed it, uh, this diplomatic tour, Nixon and Kissinger were really aware that it would provide an opportunity for Kissinger to go to Paris to officially report on Nixon's tour. But while he was in Paris, then he could meet in, in secret with a representative from North Vietnam. So, so he was able to do that. That particular meeting didn't end the war or anything like that, but it did open this important line of communication, which really did impact then the trajectory of the Cold War and U.S. Um, relations with Vietnam. You paint this picture of, of Richard Nixon and just really just reveling in this moon glow of Apollo 11, loving meeting the astronauts, sending him around the world, benefiting politically, doing his victory lap around the world. But then he, they just stop effectively, right? They, they, this doesn't enable more great feats of human exploration to keep happening. As, as you well know, Nixon went and ended the Apollo program under his watch and only would fund a much more minimal human spaceflight program after that. And so I was I was kind of left with this question about if Apollo was such this international hit, if it was so effective in representing U.S. soft power and prestige and influence, how could that then not be used to justify a continued program at that level to continue making these firsts? Or was it just really seen as a useful temporary tool of foreign policy and, and not much more than that? One important factor is that over the course of um, the 1960s and into the Nixon administration and even more beyond that, public diplomacy was receiving less and less priority within presidential administrations. And so um, during the Eisenhower and Kennedy administrations, it was prioritized quite a lot and seen as quite critical to larger U.S. grand strategy. Public diplomacy's um, role within foreign relations was beginning to wane. So that's that's one of the factors. I think it's also hard to um, see what type of follow-on program you could do to Apollo that was in any way fit within the budget. So there was a lot of hope that we would be going to Mars next. Um, that is on such a larger scale than lunar exploration, as we know well, um, and especially in conversations today, it's it would have required a huge, huge investment. And this was at a time when the U.S. was already spending a huge amount on the Vietnam War and other huge issues at the time, as well as this interest in pursuing detente and improved relations with the Soviet Union um, made the space race uh, sort of a less appealing thing to invest in. So space on its own terms, although it could have um, had an impact, I think, in terms of foreign relations, even without a space competition, like a space race, that was an important part of motivating Kennedy, at least initially, to um, pursue that lunar objective. And there wasn't that similar kind of motivation for something like Mars exploration, which I think would have been the most clear next step for, you know, what do you do after landing humans on the moon? 
that has that kind of same impressive resonance with people, I think would have had to be something like Mars. Right. I mean, what happened when they followed up landing humans on the moon with landing humans on the moon again? Like, What was the, uh, <laughs> was there a similar Operation Moonglow or a giant step tour of Apollo 12 or 14 or 15, 16 or 17? I, what was the, was there diminishing returns from follow on missions in terms of uh, foreign outreach? International interest in the Apollo program um, was more sustained than it was domestically. And there was more enthusiasm for 12 and 13, 14 internationally than there was in the United States. Um, and there were more diplomatic tours. So after Apollo 12, it was the bullseye tour uh, because this was the, the mission with the pinpoint landing. Um, and after 13, there was you know a tour. So there was still quite a bit of interest, but doing something for the first time that really attracted a different degree of attention. And it, uh, the first moon landing was, you know, it changed human experience. Humans for the first time landed on another celestial body um, and half the world stopped what they were doing to follow that flight. Those are, those are unique events uh, or an, a unique event. And the next time you do it, it's obviously not going to have the same kind of resonance, even if there are variations from mission to mission. And so um, there was interest. The interest was more sustained, but it it still didn't have um, sort of that level of impact of of the first moon landing. I wonder too. One of the reasons why maybe the from a U.S. foreign outreach or international outreach perspective is that with Apollo thirteen, it was reminded that this is kind of a double edged sword too. Like failure may also have a significant negative consequence in terms of U.S. capability. Did that? have an effect. Obviously, Apollo 13 came back successful, and that was turned out to be a great, in a sense, PR opportunity for, for mm -hmm. NASA in the United States. But should failure have actually occurred, and Apollo was just extraordinarily risky, do you think that would have undermined their goals uh, in terms of what they were trying to achieve? I think failure could have potentially undermined the goals. But if you look at the, the case of Apollo, the Apollo 1 fire, which is a horrible tragedy, and three people perished, um, the decision was to be open about that um, and to share that information with the world. And that was um, interpreted as something positive overall. So there was a lot of um, sympathy around the world for that, that tragedy. People um, expressed respect for the United States to decide to you know, share that information, not hide flaws or not hide mistakes, but instead uh, work to fix them. You know, if that's any indication, the, the failures would have been well received as long as the country was open about them and and worked on fixing them. So it probably was even less of a, a potential blow to prestige than one might think. Early on, there was a lot of concern uh, about that, but but I think it was handled quite well with Apollo 1, and I imagine it would have been handled in a similar way if a future mission had failed. Nothing could quite compare with landing on the moon for the first time, but has there been anything, maybe not even in space, has there been anything in uh, the global sphere that has compared to Operation Moonglow or the giant step in terms of that, that universal appeal that any country, not just the United States, has been able to use as its own, to its own benefit to extend improved relations with, with its international partners. I can't imagine going to the International Space Station would generate the same kind of interest, even though I, since ironically, there's actual international collaboration, right? We had all this international feel good and this idea that it was all pitched as this, we did this with Apollo, even though it had almost had no international collaboration and actual international 
efforts to explore space seem to receive far less attention for doing so. Has there been anything comparable to this? And then why do you think that we haven't been able to, or, or people haven't responded to subsequent efforts in space in the same way, even as the doors have been opened to some degree? I can't think of anything comparable. It was an unbelievable moment in history when you have half the world's population every continent, you know, people stopping what they were doing the middle of the night, it didn't matter. They were tuned in on their televisions or on their listening to the radio uh, to follow that mission. And that, that experience, it's hard to know how anything could in, inspire that many people to focus on it, to pay attention and, and also pr to prioritize experiencing it together. That was a big part of the first lunar landing is everyone recognizing that this is something we're doing as the world together. We're watching a human on the moon. I don't think there is anything anything that that has followed um, that could be similar to that. But it seems strange that the ISS would seem to receive so much less attention from a global audience, despite having so much more global engagement with it, that, that there are many more avenues for international participation. There's actual astronauts from Europe and Japan and other parts of the world that fly on, on the ISS that you didn't get with Apollo. So has there been any kind of similar global appreciation of even though it's not as big of a kind of moment uh, of landing on the moon, but the actual contribution is there. Has that ever seen any sort of resonance? Well, I think you bring up a great point, and it really points to the important role that the U.S. Information Agency played in Apollo. So having this huge communications infrastructure that was promoting spaceflight around the world at the time, sharing these stories, ensuring that the they were appearing in newspapers and producing films. And the USIA was even in places where there weren't movie theaters. They would have these vans, these trucks with um, screens, and they would project uh, space films for people outside. I mean, the, the level of, of effort that went into promoting the American space program in the 1960s around the world was a huge contributor to this global audience that watched the first lunar landing. And it was an important part of that story. And so we don't have that same level of investment in communicating stories about the American space program or the international space station and a lot of the important work that's going on there. And although there is some infrastructure that does that, there, there is public relations, there is coverage of those stories. It's just not on the same scale that it was in the 1960s. And part of that is not only, it's not um, just a story about spaceflight, it's also a story about U.S. investment in um, soft power and public diplomacy. Dr. Teasel Muir Harmony is a historian of science and technology, a curator of the Apollo spacecraft collection at the Smithsonian Institution, and the author of the book we just talked about today, Operation Moonglow, A Political History of Project Apollo. Greatly enjoyed the book. And Teasel, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. I thought that was a really interesting discussion. Thank you so much for having me. That was Casey Dreyer, the Senior Space Policy Advisor and Chief Advocate for the Planetary Society, with his guest for the December Space Policy Edition, Teasel Muir Harmony. Great conversation, Casey. Thank you very much for that. Oh, of course. And thank you to Teasel for, for being here. Always fun to dive into the history of space. And Apollo, it's just, it just reminds you just how rich and deep that story is and how much is, I think, really yet to be told, not just in the U.S., but globally. I enjoyed that and hope everyone else enjoyed listening to it.
Yeah, and I suspect that uh, there'll be a few people, and I'm among them, who are now intrigued and, and will want to take a look through the book because that conversation was so not just deep but broad about all these implications of Apollo, uh, some of which are, I'm sure, still with us today. Anyway, great conversation. Uh, Casey, we'll be talking again in the new year in 2021. Let's hope it's a little better of a year for everybody <laughs> than <laughs> than 2020 was. Uh, but lots of exciting things to look forward to, right? Not, you know, obviously we'll have a, a new administration, new space policy, but James Webb Space Telescope will launch. Uh, well, I mean, <laughs> should I knock on wood? Should I cross yeah, my fingers? I think so. It's scheduled to launch. Uh, the Lucy mission is scheduled to launch. I believe the DART mission to impact an asteroid is scheduled to launch. There's a ton of missions happening next year. Boeing Starliner should launch humans for the first time if everything goes to plan. Might see a launch of Starship uh, from SpaceX. Oh my gosh, it's going to be a great, exciting year for space and so many things in terms of politics and policy to discuss. We will dive into that, I guarantee you. You left out the red planet. Three new arrivals in February. <laughs> oh yeah, that <laughs> the three the three missions of the flotilla of Mars spacecraft. Uh, one of which my wife works on. I should remember that one uh, oh, yes. in particular. That's coming up in February and and in the, throughout the spring. That's going to be incredible. The first of the extended Mars sample return universe uh, missions begins uh, its work next February. Join us, therefore, on the first Friday in January and uh, the first Fridays throughout the year. And join us at the Planetary Society. Once again, that pitch at uh, planetary.org slash membership and our year-end campaign underway for those who want to go the extra mile. We hope that you have enjoyed this program and will continue to enjoy it just as we have. Uh, happy holidays, whatever your holidays may be, to all of you. And the very happiest of New Year's, uh, as Casey said, we sure hope it'll be a better one than 2020. Uh, Casey, thanks. We'll be talking to you soon. As always, Matt, happy to be here. Take care, all. Best of success and at Astro.